are uh, beginning Genesis chapter 3, and we have uh, uh, gotten through the, through the story of creation and the story of, uh, of, the, uh, <coughs> of the creation of man and woman that we looked at in, uh, in chapter 2 last week. And today we're going to pick up with the story of the fall, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. But uh, let's uh, begin reading uh, in verse 15 of chapter 2 to remember what we talked about last week. And we'll read down through about verse uh, 8 or so of chapter 3. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept and he took from his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Okay? Well, last week we were looking at... Uh, Roughly verses 15 down through 25 of chapter 2. Do you remember anything we talked about last week? There wasn't any evil, but it was alluded to. Okay. Okay. And how was it alluded to? 
but there's the tree of the knowledge. Okay. So that implies there's something out there, doesn't there? Although they they were uh, just blissfully unaware of that at that point. Yes. Okay. David? They were protected. Okay. Okay. They were protected from people obviously existed. Okay. What was the what was the purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why did God put it there? Pardon? Okay, to teach them about good and evil. How was that? If they were not to eat of the tree, how was it supposed to teach them about good and evil if they couldn't eat of it? They couldn't even touch it. Okay, okay, and what would you do? I, I didn't realize, you know, I was in the but I, could, I didn't realize I couldn't even touch it. Well, we're going to talk about that today and whether or not that's actually what was what what it said. So we're going to talk about that because there's some question about it. Now, that's what she said. That's what he said. So uh, there, there is dispute about that. I, I tend to agree with you, Ginger, but we, we'll, we'll talk about that question. But the point is, is the, okay, by their obedience, <clears throat> the point that we, I, I, uh, the way I explained it last week is that there was that there was a latent power in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to impart that knowledge of good and evil, but it was latent until such time as it was actuated by the temptation. Okay, so that when when uh, Eve was confronted with the temptation, come on in. We've got the whole clan here today. This is great. <laughs> And so, um, so when when Eve was confronted by the serpent, when she was tempted, at that point, the power of the tree to impart good and evil is actuated. And how she, how she, uh, uh, she and Adam then acquire the knowledge of good and evil, in God's intention, was by their resisting the temptation to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, not by their eating of it. So if they would, so if they had resisted the temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they would have had a knowledge of good and evil, but they would not have personally partaken of evil, which is in fact what happened, and we'll get into that today. Okay. So remember that the tree is put there in the garden, not simply, not simply as a test to see whether or not man would choose righteousness, but it is actually put there to to imbue or to or to give to man this knowledge of good and evil, but it was, to, but that was to happen through his resisting the temptation to eat of the tree, not by his eating the tree. Okay, what else did we talk about? Well, I wasn't here last week, but certainly you talk about everything made out of dust except women. Did you talk about that? We didn't talk about that. Would you like to elaborate? No. No, I I wouldn't want it because of Jupiter's head. I talk about it too much because (laughs) we. uh, I I I think I may have alluded to it briefly. We did not go into it, but but that is a good observation that that man was made from the dust of the ground. The beasts, the creatures, they were all made from the dust of the ground. But woman was made from the bone and flesh of man. Okay which is the thing that strikes Adam as so striking. He says, she is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he recognizes this absolute uniqueness of, of this uh, uh, creature that God has brought to him. I didn't use that term derogatorily, by the way. 
we have that experience we talked about last week with, with Adam where God brings and presents to him Eve and just this, this glorious realization on Adam's part of this of the, <coughs> excuse me of this wonderful provision of God of God's just remarkable wisdom and God's just incredible love for him that he has created this helper that corresponds to him, that is suitable to him. And, and Adam is just overwhelmed by this. And they're in, they're in now the, the Garden of Eden. They're in paradise. They're in this environment of absolute beauty and splendor and in, uh, a just awesome, bountiful provision of, of just every need that they might have. Uh, come on in. Make yourself home. Um, so they have this just this beautiful environment uh, there's no awareness of evil there's complete perfect fellowship with God enjoying uh, as we'll discover next week uh, having enjoyed the very presence of God in the garden the, the ability to walk with God and talk with God and fellowship with God we have man now with a helper who corresponds to him, a companion who perfectly suits him and perfectly matches him. It's just absolute paradise. It's absolute, uh, just a splendid situation. Uh, and, and we believe as well that man at this point is endowed with just remarkable intelligence and perception and even physical abilities that, that we probably no longer possess since, uh, since the effects of the fall. It's just this remarkable environment. Okay. And that's the environment we have then when we move on into chapter 3. I want to point out that going into chapter, from chapter 2 into chapter 3, uh, a, a couple of things. One is, one is that there's an interesting play on words here, uh, beginning there at the end of chapter 2 and going into chapter 3. And I'll just mention now and then, uh, and then I hope to bring it up again as we're going through the lesson. But... But in verse 25 it says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, and then in verse three, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. And then in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 7, it says, The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And there's an interesting thing in the Hebrew here. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but but uh, the commentaries point this out. That there's a play on words uh, here between the three words. The word naked in verse 25 of chapter 2 and the word uh, crafty in chapter 3 verse 1 and the ver word naked in chapter 3 verse 7. And as I pointed out last week, there's a difference between the Hebrew word that's translated naked in 2.25 and the one that's translated naked is in 3.7. Uh, and the other interesting thing is that the, that the word for crafty or prudent or shrewd in chapter 3 verse 1 is very similar. There's only one letter difference between all three of these words. Okay, So, uh, here, I'll just write them up here. The transliteration of the words is in uh, in 325, the word for naked is transliterated Aram, A-R-O-M. In chapter 3, verse 1, the word for crafty or prudent is transliterated E-R-O-M. Uh, excuse me, that's wrong. Uh, it's uh, A-R-U-M. And then the word for naked in chapter 3, verse 7 is 
E-R-O-M. So you can see if you're reading that in Hebrew, uh, that this wordplay would jump out at you. Okay? And it's like the narrator here that, uh, that, that Moses, in writing this story for us, is, is making a connection, making us think about the connection of these words. Okay? So that in chapter 2, verse 25, we have this word for naked, Adoram, and it, and it has the idea, uh, of course it means it's translated naked, and, uh, and, and, it, and that's the meaning, but it has the idea of complete innocence. Okay? But it differs from the word that's used in, in, uh, in verse 7 of the next chapter because in that, in, in that verse, the word that's used is a word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament uh, for the word naked, but carries with it the connotation of the judgment of God. Okay? So, for example, in Deuteronomy, when God is warning the children of Israel that if they don't obey God, that there's going to be this judgment on them, they're going to be carried away captive, and they're going to be carried away naked. And this is the word that's used. So this word for naked carries the connotation of, of judgment, or of God's judgment on someone. Okay? And it has that idea carried with it. And so you can see there's a, there's a real contrast between the nakedness of 225 and the nakedness of 37. Okay? And, and then connected with that, is this, is, uh, is this other word that is also in Hebrew so similar, is this idea of shrewdness or, or prudence or, or craftiness that we get in chapter 1, or get in verse 1 of chapter 3 of the serpent. Okay? And so there's this contrast in 220, between 2.25 and 3.1, there's this contrast between the, the nakedness, the innocence of the man and woman, and the shrewdness and the craftiness of the serpent. Okay? So just keep that in mind as we're going through it. I wanted to, I wanted to point that out. more than just a serpent. How do we know it's more than just a serpent? 
Okay, he's talking. Okay, that's clue number one. Okay. Now, now we should. I, I think sometimes, uh, sometimes we don't give Adam and Eve enough benefit of the doubt. Sometimes I think we give them too much. And, and I think I, I, and I've heard it sometimes explained. Well, you know, Eve would have, you know, she's new, she doesn't understand that animals don't talk, and so she carries on this conversation with us. I don't buy that. Adam had just gone through this whole process of doing what? Naming the animals. Okay, so he had been studying, he'd been looking at the nature of the animals, and he had found nothing that what? He found no creature that what? suitable to him or corresponded to him. There was nothing out there that had the ability to reason and use language. Okay, That's only one aspect of the correspondence. But that's obviously an important part of the correspondence. So it's very clear. There's nothing else out there that can talk and reason and I can carry on this fellowship and this communion with. Okay, So I think it should have been pretty clear to Eve that there was something unusual about this particular serpent. Now, when it says the serpent was more crafty than all the beasts in the field which the Lord God made, the question that normally comes, naturally comes up, is he speaking of serpents in general, or is he speaking of this particular serpent? Okay. And I don't think we could be dogmatic on that, but, but I lean towards the understanding that, that he is just simply referring to this specific serpent. Okay. There's nothing particularly... Uh, crafty or subtle or whatever about serpents in general, snakes in general, okay? More so than many other creatures of the field. But but this particular creature is imbued or endowed with just an exceptional of sophistication and craftiness. Now the word crafty there, you know, we use the word crafty where we usually use it in a derogatory term, but the, but the word here that the that the Hebrew is using is, is not typically a derogatory or negative term. But actually, it's sometimes used in Proverbs in a very positive way. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily carry with it the sense of of some kind of evil craftiness when, as it's translated in our in our Bibles, but just has the idea of this sophistication and. Uh, skill and reasoning and prudence and wisdom. And when I think about that, then I begin to think about the Lord's description of Lucifer in Isaiah before the fall, right? This great, wise, powerful creature. Okay, And that's what I begin to think of then, which is one of the reasons why I think that the reference here to the craftiness of the serpent is a reference to this specific serpent and, and, and not to all serpents. But like I said, I don't think we can be dogmatic on that. But one thing is clear. We have a stark contrast between the innocence and in some, to some degree the ignorance. And it's not ignorance in a negative sense, but it's ignorance that comes from innocence. Okay, The innocence of Adam and Eve, and particularly in this case Eve, the contrast between them and just the exceeding wisdom and shrewdness and prudence and craftiness of this creature that she is encountering. Okay. Now this does not absolve her of her neglect to exercise dominion over the creation, okay, which we talked about several weeks ago. She is responsible. 
Uh, she is responsible with that with that uh, with that mandate from God that was given to Adam and Eve to exercise dominion over the creation. She was responsible to exercise dominion over the serpent, and of course, she fails to do that. But uh, but the point is, this 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 creature is just extremely wise, extremely shrewd, extremely crafty. Yes, my translation. Okay, so so let's keep that in mind. We have this contrast that's brought out in the wordplay between the innocence of Adam and Eve and the sophistication, and I like that word sophistication, uh, of of uh, of this creature that she's encountering. Okay, and what does the creature do? What does this serpent do? He takes the truth and twists. Uh, let me back up for a second. That, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, <clears throat> let me back up for a second. I didn't finish the thought I started a few minutes ago. So if the serpent is not merely a serpent, it is more than a serpent. Clearly we understand, and from, from other passages in Scripture we understand, that this serpent is actually animated by and empowered by Satan himself. Okay, So he is a possessed serpent. Now that's not... You know that's not a foreign concept in Scripture. Remember, we had the swine that were uh, that were uh, possessed with demons in the story of the swine uh, with Jesus there in the in the land of the Gadarenes in the Gospels. And so, so this idea of the demons possessing animals is uh, uh, is, is not foreign to Scripture. And so we have, in fact, we have Satan possessing the serpent. And speaking through and empowering and animating the serpent. Okay. So, my question again then is, what is the first thing the serpent does? Question. What does he do before? I mean, okay, questions. But what does it say he did? First thing it says. He said. He said. Okay. At that point, you know, Eve should have gone. There's something different here. I need to pay attention to what's going on. Okay. The serpent begins to employ one of the most significant gifts that is given to man, and that is what? Speech. The use of language. And the attendant use of reason. Okay. So the serpent now engages Eve. Now we don't know if, if the entire dialogue between the serpent and Eve is recorded here. Only It may be that only the most crucial elements of the dialogue are, are, are recorded for us. And I personally think that's the case. I find it a little hard to believe that Eve is just kind of walking through the garden and all of a sudden this serpent asks her a question and she just enters into this profound theological discussion with the serpent. I think that there was probably more that went on in this discussion between the two and that the, that the narrator here has just relayed to us the crucial elements of, of the dialogue between them. Okay, uh, You can... Uh, Take that or leave that for what it's worth, but that's how I understand it. Okay. But he begins to use words and language. He takes this tremendous gift of God and he perverts it. And he begins to use it to destroy God's creation. Okay. Now he has his own agenda, we understand from Isaiah chapter 14. Uh, and of course, that agenda, that agenda is that he wants to exalt himself to be like the Most High God, which makes it interesting that that's the same temptation that he presents, of course, to Eve, is that she would become like God. 
But but he begins to employ language, and I've been this week I've been reading a book that's just uh, it's just made me think a lot about the power there is, the power that resides in words and in ideas, and how much damage we can do with our words. I've been reading a book. Uh, uh, it's kind of a funny title. The, the title of the book is Ten Books That Screwed Up the World and Five Others That Didn't Help. Okay, And uh, it's a funny sounding title, but it's a pretty profound book. The book is much more profound than the title makes it sound, actually. The guy is uh, quite a scholar. And, and, uh, and he, goes through, uh, he goes through 15 different books, uh, starting back with Machiavelli's The Prince over 500 years ago. And he goes through... Uh, he goes through the prince, and he goes through uh, Rousseau's writings, and he goes through Freud's writings, and he goes through Mein Kampf, and he goes through uh, Marx's writings and Lenin's writings, and and uh, and Sanger's writings, and Margaret Sanger, and other stuff. And he talks about these books. And the, and the thing that strikes me is how these books, as 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 he presents them, come up with these just absolutely ludicrous ideas absolutely perverted concepts of reality. And yet the intellectual world is bought into it. And we come to understand how easily this tremendous gift that God has given us to communicate verbally can be distorted to our destruction. You know the little ditty uh, that we used to say, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones and words will never harm me and you know, and, and, and you know, there's obviously a little element of truth to that, you know. But but the reality is, ideas have consequences, and that and that there's a tremendous power in the use of language to destroy. There's of course a tremendous power in the use of language to build up and to edify and to glorify God. And of course, that was its purpose. In the first place. But there is then the other side of it, the flip side, the power to destroy. And that's what Satan is doing. He's using this power of language and reasoning to destroy God's creation. That's his intent. That's his purpose. Okay. So he begins to speak, and what is the first thing he does? What is the first thing he says? Okay. And I want you to notice how he says it. in, uh, in verse 1 there, it says, He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, there's tremendous subtlety in what he's done here. Okay. In the first place, let me point out to you, oftentimes, uh, I've heard it many, many times, this verse used, to suggest that what the serpent was saying was that God had not said what he said. That he was calling into question what God had said. He is not calling into question what God had said. He actually exaggerates what God said. Notice that. Has God said you can't eat of any tree of the garden? Has God put all these trees off limits to you? All this bounty and all this fruitfulness? Has He put all this off limits to you? Okay. But it's not, that, it's not so much that what He is trying to do is suggest to Eve that God has not made a prohibition. What he's actually doing is he's trying to malign the character of God to show God's excessive severity in restricting something that should not have been restricted. That is why the word indeed is in there. You notice that? 
The word indeed is actually an expression of surprise. Now, now the serpent is not surprised that God has said what he said. But he's communicating surprise. It's like, has God told you you can't eat of any of the trees of the garden? And so it's not that he's it's not that he's calling into question what God said so much, as that he's calling into question what? God's what? God's goodness, God's character, God's holiness. That's what's being called into question. Not whether or not God said something, but whether or not God is not just a petty, envious little God who's really so self-centered, he's more concerned about protecting his own little domain and getting his own glory than in what is really in your best interest. But by doing it this way, he sucks her into the conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. If he'd come on with a full frontal attack at this point, there's a very good chance she would have, you know, recoiled back. But he takes this other approach. Yes, right. Is the idea that God could be anything 
but perfectly just and perfectly righteous and perfectly reasonable in everything he does. But now, the serpent has introduced into her mind subconsciously by his exaggeration and by his feigned surprise, he has introduced into her mind the specter that God could be unreasonable. Has that thought ever entered your mind? It has mine on many occasions. Things don't go the way I want. Life's a little tougher than I expected. Uh, I think God ought to do one thing and He does another thing. And somewhere back there in the back of my mind is that thought, God's not there. But why is God doing this to me? Why is God letting this happen to me? Does God not care? And, I, you know, I, I don't know if you struggled with those thoughts, but I struggled with them. And so I can identify with Eve that in her mind, for the first time, this specter of the unreasonableness of God entered her mind. And she says, Well, no. God said we could eat of all the fruit. But of this one tree, He has prohibited us from eating it, even from touching it. Now, now I would suggest to you, and, and, and this is reading between the lines a little bit here, but I would suggest to you that by the time she's saying this, she's already beginning to wonder, is this really fair? The seed of doubt has been planted. Because the seed of doubt has been planted. Yeah. yeah. And so now she's beginning to go, well, but why even this one tree? You know, What is it about this one tree? Excuse me. She could have turned it around. Yeah, well, yeah, she should have taken dominion. She has, she also has the mandate of dominion, and she should have taken dominion. But she doesn't take dominion, and she continues to listen and carry on this dialogue with the serpent. Yes, Rick? Okay, now let's talk about that. Okay. Now, this is, a, this is a question that commentators wrestle with because in the original commandment as it's recorded earlier in the chapter, God said not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As Eve repeats the commandment, she says that he said not to touch it. And, and people have read a lot into that and suggested that she's taking God's word, you know, going beyond what God said. Uh, and, and adding to God's word, uh, there are actually several. I, I came across at least four or five possible explanations for why she adds this. Okay, and the first possible explanation is it's not an addition. It may be that the first commandment, as it's recorded the first time, is not complete. It may be that the narrator, in telling us of, uh, of God's initial commandment, doesn't tell us everything God said. Okay, in many places in Scripture. We find that, that, that one, one portion of Scripture doesn't tell us everything and we get the rest of the story in another place in Scripture. Okay? So it is possible that God did tell him not to command it, uh, to, uh, to touch it. That's right. Okay, okay. That, and that's a good question. If up to this point she's not sinned or she's not corrupted, why would she say something like that? There is a possibility, some have suggested, that she simply misunderstood Adam's instructions to her because the command was given to Adam before her creation. Okay. So 
it's possible that, that some suggest that well, she just that, that was her understanding of what Adam told her, but it may not have been accurate. Uh, I have problems with that because this is before the fall, and so I have problems with that uh, particular understanding. But there, are, there is also the possibility that it is simply her understanding of how the command is to be obeyed. In other words, to be honest with you, if it were me, and God said, don't eat of that tree, because the day you eat of it, you're going to die, I think I would have wanted to give that tree a pretty wide berth. You know, I don't think I would have been going out there going, no, you know, this is a nice, smooth-feeling apple. You know, I don't think I would have been doing that. I mean, I, mean, I would have but I shouldn't have, you know. It's, it's that kind of idea of playing with evil, okay? And so, it's possible that it was just her understanding of, if we're not, you know, this is just something we don't meddle with. We don't mess with this tree, okay? God's told us don't mess with the tree. We're not going to mess with the tree. So, I don't want to attach too much to the significance to uh, Eve's statement here. Uh, where she adds this comment about do not touch the tree. Uh, in fact, I kind of want to give her the benefit of that. I want to, you know, I, I kind of kind of want to say she's just trying to steer a wide berth here from something she knows to be against God's commandment and also very dangerous. Okay, uh, but you can uh, there again. That's uh, that's open for interpretation, and you can uh, you can do it if, maybe in some other ways. But those are some things to think about. But now, apparently, the serpent knows that he has her where he wants her because what is the next thing he says? You will not surely die. You will not surely die. And so now, his, he's, you know, he's, he's reached his final gambit. He's, he is, he's played, his cards. he's played his cards out. He's stated in black and white. He has lied, and he has called God a liar. Now, in Eve's mind, what? What do you mean I won't die? There must be some explanation for God, why God would say to me, don't eat of this tree, because in the day you eat of it you will die, if I won't die. Now, why would God do such a thing? And the answer is, why would God do such a thing? Why would God lie to us? Pardon? He does not lie to us. Okay, but we're thinking that we're not thinking righteously. We're thinking the way the serpent and the way Eve is thinking at this point. Why would he lie to us? Because he's unworthy to be God. He's keeping secrets from us. He's really a petty, jealous, envious, self centered God. He doesn't want the competition. He doesn't want you to have the things that really will make you happy and fulfilled. Because that's a threat to him. Now that all sounds pretty far-fetched in the context of paradise, doesn't it? But it doesn't really sound all that far-fetched when we think about the things that we are exposed to and have to think about every day of our lives in this fallen world. right? Because we have to wrestle with this idea. God is constantly being accused of being a petty, selfish, self-centered, glory-mongering, seeking, unloving, unreasonable, severe God. 
Isn't that the kind of God we see characterized around us all the time? And isn't, in fact, that the very thing that we wrestle with when we confront temptation head on? Every time I confront temptation head on, I'm being tempted to think that God is withholding something from me that I need for my happiness and my fulfillment. And of course, I'm a nice, evangelical, Baptist, Bible-believing Christian. So I will never say it in these terms. I will never articulate it in these terms. But in my heart of hearts, what I'm thinking and what I'm saying is, God is withholding good from me. And when I do that, I am blaspheming the character in the name of God. Now, I will never do that. I'll never lift up my fist and do that because I'm too good of a person to do that. But that's the nature of temptation, isn't it? That's what temptation is drawing us to, is to this this conclusion that God is withholding from us and therefore the only reason for me to be really happy and really fulfilled is for me to go it alone. For me to abandon God and God's way for my life and God's word for my life and to go it alone. And that's what Adam and Eve are being enticed to do. They're being enticed to go it alone. Up to this point, their life has been completely dependent upon God for everything. For their fulfillment, for their happiness, for all of their needs. And they're being tempted to think, God isn't really concerned about your needs, and He isn't concerned about your fulfillment, and He isn't concerned about your happiness. And if you want to get those things, you're going to get it on your own. And that's what they do. So, so he says, you will not surely die. But God really knows that in the day that you eat of this, remember God said, in the day you eat of it, you will what? Die. The serpent says, in the day you eat of it, what? What? What does he say specifically? What does he say before that? Your eyes will be opened. In the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And Lucifer says, in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And both things are true. See, this is the startling thing, is that the majority of what Lucifer tells Eve here in the garden is true. The majority of what he tells her is true. It's the things he doesn't tell her and the things he tells her that aren't true that make everything he tells her untrue. But he says, in the days that you eat, in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And we discover that in fact, the moment they eat of it, their eyes are open. But what she believes, what she comes to think, because of the implication of the way the question is put to her, what she comes to think is there's this beautiful knowledge out there. This wonderful, powerful knowledge that she can have. That she will just eat of the fruit. She'll have this wonderful, beautiful knowledge. But what was the knowledge they got when they ate of the fruit? What's the first thing they saw when their eyes were open? They were naked. Second word for nakedness. 
under the judgment of God. And suddenly, when they eat of the fruit, their eyes are open, and the first thing they realize is that these bodies that God had given to them, which were up through chapter 2, verse 25, so perfect and so unblemished, so free of any impurity. They were absolutely innocent and pure, and so their nakedness was a, was a glorious and it was a beautiful thing because it represented their purity and their innocence. Now, this body, the actual physical body, was now corrupted by sin. And it was no longer this beautiful, pure thing. But it was actually representative of this all-permeated, permeating wretchedness and depravity that they had taken into themselves by eating the fruit. And so now, yes, they do have a knowledge of good and evil, not the kind of a knowledge of good and evil that God had wanted them to have, a knowledge of evil out there, that was out there that was to be avoided and was to be resisted and to be opposed. But now they have a knowledge of good and evil. They have a knowledge of evil inside of them. It was part of them. It was intrinsic to their nature. And that's what Lucifer did not tell them. Well, so then after he spun his web of lies here, what does it tell us that the woman thought? Believing she won't. Okay. What else is she not thinking about? 
Okay, she's not thinking about, you know, she's, she's taking the word of the serpent. I mean, she's got this creator that just formed her out of the, out of the rib of her husband, you know, and brought her and presented her in this beautiful wedding ceremony and all the, all the glorious stuff. And she's bought into this line that this serpent is giving her as much as she knows about God. She's not thinking about God. What else is she thinking? This commandment. This commandment. Now, I think this is important for us to understand. In chapter 2, verse 25, they are naked and they are not ashamed because they are innocent. Completely innocent. And now they are confronted with this remarkable subtlety and sophistication. And the question, and, and the scripture is very explicit. He was deceived. She says she was deceived, but repeatedly the scripture says she was deceived in contrast to Adam, who was not. The scripture says specifically, Adam was not deceived. But Eve was deceived. And the question that comes to my mind, how can I, if I were, as I were, if I were as innocent as Eve, and confronted with the sophistication and craftiness and subtlety of the serpent, how could I possibly avoid being deceived? Because it's clear that she's culpable for the deception, because, because as we see next week, when we get later in chapter 3, God holds her responsible for that deception. So the question is, how can I avoid being deceived? Because the reality is, no matter how well I know God's Word, and no matter how sophisticated my thinking is, and how carefully I've reasoned through all the apologetics of Christianity, I'm always going to be able to find somebody who's smarter and more sophisticated and got better answers than me, who can refute everything I say. I'll always be able to find someone like that. You ever felt that way? No matter how well you know the truth, that you can always find somebody that seems like they can argue circles around you. There's always a serpent out there craftier than you. So how are you going to avoid being deceived? How could Eve avoid being deceived? God's commandment. God's commandment. That's all we got, folks. That's all we got is we have God's Word and God's commandment. And that's all she needed to avoid deception. That any time the serpent came and said, well, God said this, but yeah, that's unreasonable. All she needed to do was say, God said this. That's what Jesus said. Okay. Now, but I want to point something out to you about it. That's what she did first. Notice that? She did that initially. So what went wrong? I want to suggest to you that using the Scripture in resisting temptation, we must remember it is not simply some magical talisman that we can wave in front of temptation like somebody waves a crucifix in front of a vampire. The only reason that Jesus quoting Scripture in the wilderness gave him victory over temptation was not because he quoted Scripture, but because he believed the Scripture he quoted. And it's not enough to simply quote verses when I'm confronted by temptation. I have got to believe those verses. Now, it is important that we quote Scripture and that we use Scripture when we're confronted by temptation. And Jesus in the wilderness is a classic example of that. But remember, it was not merely his quoting him that gave him the victory. It was his faith in those in those in those uh, words of God that gave him the triumph. Yes. Earlier, 
having the Bible, but not really believing it. And there was some point at which Eve ceased to believe and cling to the promises of God and the commands of God and the Word of God. And she began to buy into the lie. That was me. Well, we've gone through this elaborate description of how Eve fell. How did Adam fall? Eyes wide open. Paul says explicitly in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the woman was deceived, that Eve was deceived, and Adam was not. Now, I want to point out to you, Ginger raised this question, and I want to address it, uh, that in verse 6, there at the end of verse 6, after she's eaten the fruit, she says, and uh, she... Uh, she says she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband what? With her. With her. And also, whoa, wait a minute. My picture of this thing all along is he's off here trooping through the garden and Adam's off, you know, doing whatever Adam's doing, you know, uh, watching football or whatever, you know. And, and Eve gets suckered in. Now, there is some disagreement among commentators, but to me the text seems clear. That while all this was going on, Adam was standing right there. Why didn't he say something? And that's exactly the application that Paul makes when he cites that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. When he's talking about why a woman is not to teach her to exercise authority over men. The problem here is that Adam has not exercised the responsibility that is given to him as a husband. He's let this thing go on. If, in fact, he was there. If he was not there, then that's another issue, okay? But, but if he was there, it seems quite clear that, that Adam is really more concerned about pleasing his wife than he is about pleasing God. And Paul makes it very clear that Adam was not deceived. He says explicitly, Adam was not deceived. Now that doesn't mean that men can't be deceived. <laughs> Paul says in another place, he says to the Corinthians, he was concerned, lest they be led away from, uh, lest, that lest as the serpent deceived Eve, that, they, that their minds would be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So, it's not... It's, it's, we're not implying here that man cannot be deceived. What we're simply stating here is that in this case, Eve was deceived. But that Adam went into it with his eyes wide open. Well, at this point we come, we, we, we come to a problem for which there is no answer. And the problem is, you know, I can kind of almost excuse Eve because she was beguiled. But with Adam, he just decided he wanted to do this and he did it. And my mind reels at that because he's living in paradise and I'm going, why, 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 why? You know? And so then I start looking for 
explanation, some, something that would mitigate, something that would explain why would Adam, in his perfect state and in perfect communion and fellowship with God and without any sin nature, why would he choose to sin? And I come face to face with the reality I have no explanation. And the reason I have no explanation is because there is no reason to sin. Exactly. That's my point. That's my point. That's my point. And and so so I don't know what's going on with Adam. And I cannot explain why he did what he did. I do believe Adam's first sin is here. It's not somewhere back before this. And oftentimes in the explanations that I hear people giving for why did Adam that they're they're finding faults or mistakes that Adam made before this and before that and before you know, and, and so it's a chain of events that leads to this. I don't I don't I don't find a chain of events in this passage. I just see Adam sinning. God doesn't tell us any more than that. Except that he did it with his eyes wide open. Where is man's nature coming from? Uh, can you elaborate on your question? Yeah, man doesn't man have a sin nature. He does now. Thanks to Adam. Yeah. He didn't until Adam did this. And that is the important thing for us to understand here, by the way. That in the, the account of the fall in this passage, the predominance of the discussion is about who? Eve. Eve. In the rest of the totality of Scripture, upon whom does Scripture lay the blame for the predicament? Adam. For by one man sin entered into the world. And so, whatever was going on with Eve, and you know, we could ask the question, well, what if Eve had sinned and Adam had, you know, you can ask all those questions, we, have no, we don't have answers for them. But one thing is clear your predicament and my predicament goes back to Adam, it goes back to Eve. That's what the scripture teaches. By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Well, let's just take a moment here and think about what happened. Because as their eyes were opened and they saw they were naked, and they, then they proceeded to hide themselves from one another and they proceeded to hide themselves from God as we will see in, in our lesson next week. Have you ever allowed yourself to just kind of imagine what it was like on that moment after they ate the fruit and the transformation that they witnessed taking place in their own hearts, in their own souls, in their own minds, as darkness for the first time entered their hearts and entered their souls, as alienation and fear and guilt and shame, all those things that we're so familiar with. We, we, I mean, we, we sleep and eat with these things, but they had not known any shred of this. And all of this comes flooding in, in a moment, as the result of one act of disobedience. And death, they died that day. Remember that death throughout Scripture is not annihilation, it's separation. And they did die that day, as, that's man, as is manifested by the fact that they covered themselves from one another and they hid from God. They died. Spiritually, they died that day, and the sin nature was born in them. And there began there, at the foot of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a curse. It began in the heart and the mind of Adam and Eve. 
And it began to spread out from there until it contaminated all of paradise. The entire garden was contaminated. Every creature, every tree, every shrub, the ground itself. And it went out from there until it covered all the earth and all the seas and all the rest of the creatures around the face of the earth. And it went out from there, out into outer space, and into the very farthest reaches of the cosmos. The curse spread. It's like taking a big rock and throwing it in a perfectly still pond. And you throw this big rock in the middle of it. And those, wave, those ripples of waves go out until they reach the shores. And that's exactly what happened with all of the creation. And at that moment in time, all of creation was subjected to futility. And since that moment in time, Paul tells us in Romans, the whole creation groans and travails together as the result of that one act. Clear out to the corners of the cosmos. The curse began at that foot of that tree. And the curse will only be stopped when we come to the foot of of another tree. Paul tells us, Cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree. And then he tells us that Christ, when he hung on that tree, became a curse for us. The curse that began there at the foot of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil can only be stopped at the foot of the cross. Okay, next week we'll go on.